Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with co-host, Devin Dito. On the show today, we have Jesse Wegman, a member of the New York Times editorial board, to talk to us about the Electoral College. So sit back and listen well as we make a case for abolishing the Electoral College. Listeners, so welcome to another edition of the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, uh, Adrian Guest. And today we have another special guest on, on the show to discuss the Electoral College this time. Um, and today we have uh, Mr. Jesse Wegman from the New York Times Editorial Board. And so before we get going, we do want to, as always, give you a little bit of background um, about our guests. And so Jesse... Like I say, he joined the New York Times editorial board in 2013, and before that, he was previously a senior editor at the Daily Beast and Newsweek. He was also a legal news editor at Reuters and the managing editor of the New York Observer. And so in 2010, he received a Soros Justice Fellowship to write a book about jailhouse lawyers, and then he also graduated from New York University School of Law in 2005. And so before that... He was a producer and reporter for several national public radio programs. So decorated and he knows his stuff. So Jesse, we thank you for, for joining us today on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So of course, we're here to talk about, you know, the Electoral College. And so we want to kind of talk about a little bit about how we got here in our current system. So we know every four years we go through this this cycle. We have a presidential election you know, to choose our next commander in chief. And everybody goes to the ballot box, or at least most people uh, go to the ballot box and cast their ballots. And we await the results by tuning in, you know, to news outlets. And, you know, even some have like little parties and gatherings to observe and watch the results come in. And so we know that after every vote, though, after all the votes are tallied, we still have to wait on the Electoral College to still meet and cast the deciding votes for president. And so to some people, it feels like their voices kind of sort of don't matter, or at least we do not directly elect our leaders. So I guess our first question is, you know, how do you feel the Electoral College impacts, particularly voter turnout? And what effect do you think that do you think it has on the perception of the importance of voting in presidential elections when you consider our low partition participation rates um, in most most election cycles? Well, you're right. We, you know, we have one of the lowest participation rates in uh, any of any modern democracy. And I think one of the reasons for that, as you uh, pinpoint, is a system of choosing the president that is indirect and in which millions and millions of Americans votes really don't matter uh, to the outcome. And the reason for that is that the states uh, hold their own elections for the president, and then they award their electoral votes uh, on the basis of winner-take-all, which means one candidate gets 100% of the state's electoral votes, the other candidate gets zero. And it doesn't matter if the outcome of that popular vote in that state was, you know, a single vote difference, maybe, you know, 50, 51 to 49 or whatever uh, it might have been, it's still 100 to nothing when the electoral votes get cast. And that means that everyone in that state who voted for the candidate who got fewer votes is essentially erased before the actual election for president happens, which is the electoral college election. So, you know, it's I think it's a really distorting and corrosive system that makes people feel that they're invisible 
in choosing the leader of their country. And I think that's that's the thing that has upset people so much over the decades in terms of how the college functions. Of course, the other element of that is that it also allows the candidate who wins fewer votes to become the president. And that just is a fundamental violation of our basic concepts of majority rule, which is how we run every other election in this country. So when you put those two things together, the the violation of majority rule, which allows a candidate who wins fewer votes than his or her opponent to become president, and this erasure of tens of millions of Americans because of the way the states count their votes and award their electors, you have a system that is really, really nothing like what a modern representative democracy should be using to elect its leader. And, and you know, Jesse, what, you, what you're saying there is really important because when you think about, you know, like you said, the representative democracy, you know, of the people, by the people, for the people, you know, it, it almost uh, devalues it when we don't, you know, elect our top leader directly uh, and we do it indirectly through our electorates. And, you know, to go to our second question, when you look around the world at most advanced countries, you find that our system of voting is unlike many other countries. Uh, Most advanced democracies vote on the leader of their country using the popular vote system, yet the United States has what some will call a more complicated and archaic way of voting for president. So our second question for you, Jesse, um, could you explain to our listeners how this compromise between allowing electorates and maybe even Congress, if they don't certify the election, to choose the president versus letting the popular vote and the people choose a president can be? And do you think this system is really working as our founding fathers intended? Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the choice of how to elect a national leader was really one of the most vexing problems that the framers of the Constitution faced. They met uh, in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787 uh, to basically rewrite the Articles of Confederation. That was the first sort of constitution of the states. uh, and, And that was a total disaster. It was just didn't work for a- any number of reasons. But the main one was that there was it was it did not create a strong enough federal government with the ability to do anything to raise taxes or to wage war or to, uh, you know, basically handle disputes among the states. It was it was kind of a free for all. It was essentially a treaty among independent states. So the framers get together. They realize this isn't working. They get together in Philadelphia and they say, we need to do something different. And one of the things they say they need is a national leader, a president who does not exist under the existing system. How do you choose that person? Well, it hadn't been done before in a system of government like the like the framers were trying to create. And, you know, they were very sensitive to all of the concerns about having a person who was too powerful, right? They had just fought a war of independence uh, to break free from uh, England and, the, and, and King George, uh, who they felt uh, very rightly was a, a tyrant. Uh, and they had no representation either in the parliament there. So this was really something that was quite sensitive, and they fought about it constantly through the summer, and they couldn't come up with a system that worked. Uh, the, 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 one, of the, uh, assume, uh, one of the ways they thought about doing it was to have Congress choose the president. Uh, they had, you know, created this national legislature, which we call Congress, and, and, that, and that body would choose the, the, the president. The problem with that is, you know, they were designing a system based on separation of powers so that you have these distinct branches of government that would check and balance one another as, you know, as we learned the, the presidency, the Congress and the, and the judiciary. If the, if one, if one branch is dependent on another <laughs> for its staffing, uh, then you have a violation of the separation of powers and you have a kind of a, an opportunity for corruption and, 
and uh, and tyranny, I think, that the framers realized was not something they would want uh, to encourage. So, you know, there's lots of other debates going on at the convention about, well, what are we going to do? How do we choose a leader? In fact, several of the most influential framers at the Constitutional Convention wanted a popular vote for president. They wanted a direct vote of the people. Now, just side note here, of course, the people in 1787 was a very different group than we think of the people today, right? So obviously, uh, enslaved uh, Africans who, you know, who'd, people had been brought over as slaves or, or who were born here as slaves um, were not allowed to vote. They had no rights at all. Uh, women were not allowed to vote. Uh, even poorer white men weren't allowed to vote. Nevertheless, the concept was there at the beginning, that the best way to choose the nation's leader was by the eligible voters, the people themselves. Instead, at the end of the convention, they still hadn't resolved this fight. That that one wasn't very popular. It didn't win that many votes among the delegates. Um, and by the end of the convention, they're still fighting over it. And it wasn't until early September, in the very final days of the convention, that a few framers finally get together in a side room of the convention hall, and they hammer out the passage that we now call the Electoral College. And the system that they designed is fairly straightforward. What it does is it creates this intermediary body of what we call electors. And each state gets a number of electors that is equal to its representation in Congress. So that means however many members of the House of Representatives a state has, plus its two senators, that's how many electors it gets. And beyond that, the framers left it up to the states. Basically, every every feature that we know today of the Electoral College and that we think of as just what the Electoral College is, is actually not in the Constitution. It's just a function of state laws. So when I mentioned earlier that states give all of their electors to the candidate who wins the popular vote in their state, no matter how close that vote is, that's just a state law. Nobody told the states to do that. They decided to do it on their own. The Constitution doesn't tell them to do that. Um, and so... You know, I think that that really is uh, an, an essential thing to remember about the Constitution and about the Electoral College, which is the framers designed it essentially at the last minute as a way to just get the thing done and get out the door because they knew that the Constitution had to get out to the states for ratification or there wasn't going to be a Constitution at all. So they were they were basically kind of patching up loose ends at the very end of the convention. They were tired. They were hot. They were irritable. Um, you know, it had been a long and complicated summer. And almost immediately, the thing stops working the way they think that it will. They assume that these electors, these these sort of um, select body of men who are very well educated and, and who know about the politics of the country, will make a smart decision about who should lead America. And in fact, what ends up happening is political parties start developing, national political parties start to develop in the years immediately after the Constitutional Convention. And all of a sudden, that beautiful, supposedly beautiful and, and intricate system they designed for choosing a leader becomes just a team sport. It becomes one side against the other. And this body of intermediary men who are supposed to be acting in the best interest of the country suddenly are now acting in the best interest of their political party. That started within a decade after the Constitutional Convention, the first election uh, without George Washington on the ticket, which was 1796. And it is continuing to happen today in 2020. It is how the Electoral College has operated almost for all of American history. And it's not at all what the framers thought they had designed. That's a really uh, amazing point. Uh, I mean, amazing points throughout all of what you said. And it, it almost just reinforces 
the need for us to take a more federal approach to this rather than, you know, dictating or delegating it to the states who obviously are going to have different agendas depending on who's in office. So really, really great points. And also, thank you for the history lesson there, Jesse. That was I, I really, really love early American history. So anytime we start talking about that kind of stuff, that's really awesome. And Our viewers and listeners need to be able to hear that kind of stuff. So thank you for that. Uh, Devin, before we end our first segment, uh, any thoughts before we go into our break? No, I mean, again, a history lesson that I think we all probably needed just to understand how we got to the point where we are um, and understanding that the Electoral College system was not like a final product, you know, when it was decided upon. It was something that they probably figured was going to change at some point um, or be tweaked a little bit. But the fact that it has remained mostly intact. I know the states have made changes to it, um, but that, you know, is is reason to maybe give it a second look of like, okay, look, they did this kind of at the last minute. We can take a look back and try to tweak it and and improve it um, just like we do everything else. (laughs) We have amendments to the Constitution for a reason. Um, We can improve improve or change our voting systems, you know, down the line. I guess. <laughs> can so I, was, can I, can I make sure. a, a, can I make a couple other quick points or are we ending this segment? No, no, you can go right ahead. So two small, two, well, not small, two, two important points that I didn't get to in the, in the history of it. First of all, um, you mentioned constitutional amendments, the 1800 election. So this is the, the, I think the, the, the fourth election in the, in the country's history, right? Uh, two of them have been won by George Washington. Uh, the third one in 1796 run by John Adams. 1800 is a complete disaster. And it immediately reveals sort of the weakness in the theory behind the electoral college. Because as I say, you know, the, the, the electors are voting for their parties now, not for just who's the best to run the country, but who's their man? Uh, is it Thomas Jefferson? Is it John Adams? In 1800, the whole thing falls apart. Nobody gets a majority of electoral votes. And that's what you need to win to become president. And when that happens, the Constitution says the election gets thrown to the House of Representatives with each state getting a single vote. Now, this is insane. This is even crazier than the Senate itself, which, you know, completely disregards state, uh, you know, the size of states and gives every state equal power. In this case, it's one vote for each state, no matter its size. There were 36 votes held in the House in 1800 and actually in 1801 to decide who the president would be. And at the last minute, Finally, uh, you know, uh, Alexander Hamilton famous, famously uh, gets the, the votes to tip in favor of, of Thomas Jefferson. Um, but it was such a mess that they actually amended the Constitution to change the Electoral College. And this is barely a decade after the Constitutional Convention had created it in the first place. So they, they, the, the, the 12th Amendment uh, makes some tweaks to the Electoral College that allow to, that prevents what happened in 1800 from happening again. But that just goes to show how, you know, unthought out and how poorly designed this system was. The other point I would like to make, and I apologize if if we're getting too long here, but it's really important, which is the role of slavery at the Constitutional Convention. Should I get into that now? Or do you want to ask me about that separately? No, no, you're fine. Yeah, you can take your time there. Go ahead. Okay. So one component, one, you know, one element that was sort of at the center of every important compromise that happened at the Constitutional Convention was the role of slavery. Slavery undergirds everything. 
every deal that's made, the creation of the House of Representatives, the the establishment of the three fifths clause, which is a way that they they count uh you know the enslaved people as three fifths of a free person for the purposes of representation, in order to give the Southern states, which enslaved up to fifty percent of their residents, more representation and thus more power in the federal government, right? So that's a deal based on slavery. The Senate, you know, the fact that that states, no matter their size, get equal representation in Congress, that helps the slave states too. It also helps the small states, of course. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, the, the Electoral College. The Electoral College was in some sense uh, a continuation of the slave power, as it was known, which is a way to continue to give extra power to those states that kept slaves, Um not just in the in the legislature, not just in Congress, but transferring it over to the presidency. Because if they had more representatives in Congress, well, if you have a system of electors that is equal to your representation in Congress, you're going to have more electors too. And in fact, there's a very good case to be made that Thomas Jefferson actually won the election in 1800 thanks precisely to those extra electors that the Southern states had. They supported him and they had extra electors because of their slaves. So slavery is at the heart of this whole thing. And this isn't just sort of like a modern liberal revision, revisionist history. The framers were saying this at the time of the convention. James Madison, who's widely regarded as probably the most important, most influential framer of all, on the convention floor was saying this openly. He said, I think, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said, I think it would be better to have a popular vote for president that would produce the best leader of all, but the South won't go for it. And he says, on the score of the Negroes. And his point is, if you have a popular vote, suddenly Southern states lose the, the lose half of their residents, right? They don't get to, because they're not letting those people vote. So they become much smaller and less influential states. So Madison's point was basically, the South is what's keeping us from having a popular vote. And you can kind of see the effects of slavery playing all through that process and then into the 19th century. Um, and we can talk about the role that race, racial subjugation, Jim Crow, racial discrimination, and all the way up through today, and I would even argue up through January 6th of this year, all of this is threaded with racial, our history of of slavery, racial subjugation, and discrimination, and the Electoral College is tied completely to it. No, you're you're exactly right, and and I've haven't heard it laid out in that fashion where it's is laid bare as far as the the role of slavery and race in the the creation of our election system. I mean, a lot of people knew about the three fifths compromise, but I don't think people really understood how the Electoral College really kind of blunts the power of minorities in the country who are at that time enslaved people, because when you do kind of equal out the power and give states, you know, a certain number of electors um, based off their state population, then it does blunt the, the power that a minority could have, because obviously they aren't the majority in the state. But if, you know, if you do a, a national popular vote, their votes do, do matter a lot more than they would say, if you went off just the state results of a, That's of exactly a right. election. And so, we see it play out today. You know, it's it's funny if you look in the South, most of the states, you know, do vote Republican, even though the majority of African-Americans in the country live in the South in places like Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. Yet year after year after year, those places tend to always vote Republican Georgia up until this year. Um, and so it's interesting to see how that has lasted, like you say, all the way up until January 6th, that race played a factor, whether we want to admit it or not. 
it played a factor in how uh, the country came to be, and it's still Im- impacting us today. And that's why we're having this conversation to try to really give context to the world, you know, that we're living in currently. And so, I really appreciate you laying it bare um, for for the listeners there. And so, we are going we're going to take our first break here, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about. I guess ask the question, does the Electoral College work? Talk about some of the flaws in it and maybe the benefits of the current system. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners. So welcome back. We are continuing our our conversation with uh, Mr. Jesse Wegman. He's the member of the New York Times editorial board. And so we had a fantastic conversation in our first segment just about how we got to this point with the Electoral College. Uh, but Jesse, we kind of want to talk about the flaws in the system um, currently. And so, you know, on its face, it would, you know, it would appear that the electoral college system allows every state to make its voice heard uh, when it comes to electing presidents. You know, we were talking about smaller states and, and larger states kind of being equal. And even, you know, in the past election, you have a state like Nevada, which only has six, you know, six electoral votes, um, has the same, if not more importance than a state like California, which has 55 electoral votes. And, you know, over time, the reason for that importance between Nevada and California is that over time we've seen a consolidation really of America's electorate to where now you really only have about a handful of states that are now considered what you would call battleground states. And this happens every cycle. You know, it's the same run of states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, the Floridas. And so candidates visit these states far, far more numerous times. And they really kind of ignore the other states that are considered a safe Republican or safe Democratic state. And and you can't blame it because at the end of the day, it is a numbers game. You put resources in the battleground states where you have, you know, there's a winner take all system. So like you say, you're just trying to get to that 50%, you know, uh, threshold so that you can win um, all of that state's um, electoral votes. And so I guess the question is, is it fair to say that the current system is really rendering the voters of many states meaningless because their states tend to vote for one party every single cycle. And is this consolidation of states between, you know, going more Democratic every cycle, more Republican, the reason why we've seen things like what happened in 2000 and 2016, where the Electoral College has one result and the popular vote has a different one? Well, I'm really glad you brought up the issue of battleground states because that's at the heart of the problem of the way the Electoral College functions today. You know, a lot of people will focus on that discrepancy caused by the Senate, which is, you know, um, a a voter in Wyoming, for instance, which has three electoral votes, actually has um, many times as much power as a voter in California to affect uh, his or her electoral vote. Um, and that is true. There is a, there's a mathematical skew there because of those extra two Senate, uh, electors that every, that every, uh, state gets. But it's actually a very minor effect in our current system. What is a far, far bigger effect are those statewide winner take all laws and particularly how they play out in the battleground states, the big battleground states like Pennsylvania, like Georgia, like Arizona, right? So, What's happening there 
is, as we said before, that no matter how close the vote is, the candidate who wins more votes gets all of the electors in that state. And it doesn't have to even hit 50%. It can be any number. No state has a requirement that a candidate reach a majority of the popular vote in their state. You could get 35%. As long as your opponent got 34, you get all of that state's electors. Now, what does that mean? Why does that create battleground states? Well, as you were saying, battleground states are these states where the election is extremely close. And that means candidates with a little bit of work, a little bit of extra campaigning or advertising or pitching their policy platform toward the residents of that state and what they care about, can they can move enough votes from one camp to the other to actually win the whole state. So we just saw that happen in Georgia in in this past election which was amazing, right? As you as you said, you know, the south has essentially been solid republican for decades and Georgia is a is what this rare flip, a rare exception in that case, and that was because Joe Biden managed to, you know, appeal just enough. And, and then the activists on the ground, people like Stacey Abrams and, and Fair Fight managed to kind of register and, and mobilize enough voters that they got over that hump and managed to win more votes than Donald Trump in that state. Therefore, they get all 16 of Georgia's electors and Donald Trump gets none. You shift just a few thousand votes in the other direction and it's the reverse. Donald Trump gets all 16. Now, this is, of course, an absurd way to measure the outcome of a statewide election. It's not as though suddenly all the Republicans in Georgia just disappeared, millions of Republicans, nor was it that there were no Democrats in the state last time when it went for the Republicans. So it's a, it's a, such a distorted and, and false way of, of reflecting the political reality of a state. And that is the core problem, is that these battleground states draw all of the attention of the candidates of both parties, as you say, for understandable reasons. If that's where you got to win an election, that's where you're going to spend your time and money. But the problem is that 40 to 45 states every four years are completely ignored because they're not battleground states. So the the interests of more than 80% of Americans, you know, well over 100 million people uh, or well over 100 million uh, uh, voters, far more than that in terms of just people, are completely ignored because they don't matter. California, no matter what happens in California or what Californians want, neither candidate is going to care because they don't need to win California's votes. You saw Donald Trump watch, you know, sort of almost what appeared to be like with a smile on his face as California burned from the wildfires last year because he thought, you know, there's nothing I need to do for California. Uh, You know, I don't need to, you know, no federal disaster declaration or anything like that because they're not going to give me their 55 electoral votes either way. So it really, it really distorts the incentives that both candidates have for taking care of all of the country. And that is the whole point of this, is that the president is the only person in the whole country who's responsible for all Americans, no matter where they live. So when you give that person, either as a candidate or as the president, incentive to disregard most of Americans, you basically undermine the whole point of the job. So I think, you know, that's the that's the essential failure of the Electoral College is that it it ignore it, it it incentivizes candidates to ignore and essentially erase the vast majority of American voters in favor of just a small handful in a few battleground states. It's not even the whole battleground states. It's like, you know, some areas of western Pennsylvania or the suburbs of Philadelphia 
or it's Maricopa County in Arizona, or it's the I-4 corridor in Florida or wherever it might be, you know, those people are certainly no less valuable and no less important than other Americans, but they're no more so either. And they're treated as more valuable and more important because they're the ones that help you win elections, sometimes just a few thousand here or there. Remember in this past election, 2020, you had swung just about 50, 60,000 votes among three different states the other way. Donald Trump would be in his second term right now, even though Joe Biden won 7 million more votes around the country. So it really is this tiny swing of votes, even, you know, 160 million people cast ballots, 50,000 votes change, and you change the entire outcome of the election. It just makes no sense. And I think it it is the ultimate corrosive, uh, it, it is the ultimate corrosion of representative democracy when people know that this is how the system works and then why get involved if, if it's not going to matter anyway. You're, you're absolutely right, Jesse. And it's, it's almost like, you know, what you were saying, it, 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 it's, there's no incentive for presidential candidates to value, you know, the entire nation. It's, you know, you almost like there's no incentive for you to have a platform that's more moderate, more, you know, progressive for the entire nation because you just have to, you know, draw to a certain, you know, portion uh, of the population. And like you said, it just devalues a democracy as a nation that tries to go around the, the, the world talking about democracy and the will of the people and, and freedom. Uh, it's almost strange or odd for us to kind of deny our citizens that sort of freedom when it comes to electing, you know, their leader. But Jesse, uh, our second question Almost, you know, as a sense of a way to maybe play uh, on, on the other side of the aisle to say maybe there is a purpose for the Electoral College. Because we had a, an interview with Miles Rappaport about some different things. And, and one of the things that we talked about is how the Electoral College can be seen as a safeguard to elect our president for some people because of this notion of the uneducated voter. Um, there's a, you know, we did a news segment on it where we talked about, you know, how the South is saying there's a lot of woke voters who may not know what's going on, but may be automatically registered to vote. You know, they shouldn't, you know, be voting because they're uneducated. So some may think that that's the purpose of the Electoral College to make sure that the uneducated voter does not get to dictate who's the commander in chief and may put the wrong person, you know, in the job. So our question to you, Jesse, um, you know, does the Electoral College protect us, you know, in any way from this uneducated voter theory? Or is this objection something that is a separate issue that should be addressed through other means like voter education? Okay, I mean, this is just crazy. The the Electoral College, as it operates today, has nothing to do with with so protecting America, as it were, from dangerous candidates. I mean, I give you 2016 as as the only example uh, necessary, right? I mean, the the Electoral College is what chose Donald Trump, uh, you know, very, you know, I think very arguably the the worst and most incompetent and most uh, dangerous uh, president we've ever had. And it was the popular vote that would have elected the far more sort of centrist, technocratic, experienced leader in Hillary Clinton. Uh, and the same thing we almost saw happen again in 2020. No, the, the Electoral College, as I said earlier, you know, yes, there was a concern by some of the framers at the founding that the some Americans or many Americans would not know enough about candidates for national political office to make an informed decision. And that was because of the circumstances of the day. In the late 18th century, 
nobody had TV, nobody had radio. Uh, there weren't, there was no transportation network. Nobody went very far from their home. There were only a few newspapers. So people just didn't know very much about anyone outside of their local community. So it was fine to have them vote for, say, their member of the House of Representatives because they would probably know who that person was, but they would not know candidates for national office. And the, some of the framers were concerned that this would lead them, if they had a direct say in the election, to choose uh, you know, a con man, basically, a, a, you know, what they call a designing man. Um, and, you know, I think just really the, the, the simplest way to respond to that is to say that the system has not worked like that since 1796. <laughs> you, you know, what we have right now is a system of winner, state winner-take-all laws, and those state winner-take-all laws have nothing to do with protecting America from uneducated voters. They have to do with making sure that the state, that the, the, the party that is ascendant in that state can give all of its electors to the candidate that it wants to, right? So, you know, um, in Texas, they, you know, they, the Republicans run the state and they ensure that all, you know, the Republican is going to get all 38 of Texas's electoral votes, uh, you know, and, and it goes like that across the country. That's just a pure par- partisan mechanism for power. It has nothing to do with educated or uneducated voters. Now, I'll say as a side note here, the idea that we would disenfranchise people or some for some you know protect America from people who are uneducated or or not sufficiently informed is I think an extremely dangerous attitude. Uh, we see it getting uh, more traction now on the right uh, because I think the right has become sort of um, almost programmatically concerned about uh, voter turnout, uh, which they feel they can never win. Um, I actually think that's not even true. I, I I think there's plenty of ways that a Republican sort of sort of center right party could could win a majority of the popular vote in the country and there's there's plenty of pieces of evidence to support that but putting that aside you know stopping people from voting because you don't think they're educated enough or you don't think they they understand enough boy that that's a very very steep and slippery slope and uh i think we have lots of examples of how of how bad that uh where where that leads and it's never to a good place so you know i think if the problem is uneducated voters or uninformed voters it's not the answer is not to uh, the answer is not to shut them out of the electorate. It's to give them the information they need to make a good decision. And I think the framers, many of the framers understood that at the time of the founding. And I think, you know, uh, true Democrats, small D Democrats understand that today. You're right, Jesse. I mean, when you think about it, everyone or well, most people have cell phones. And if you've got a cell phone, you've got access to the internet where you can find all the information about candidates. So yeah, like you were far more, far more than you want to know. <laughs> That's right. You can find out about the DUIs and all this good stuff now. And, 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 and like you said that we don't need a, uh, you know, another layer who might be more informed because we can, you know, have the parameters to inform our general population, whether that be through government agencies or through nonprofits who like, you know, like Stacey Abrams, who, you know, registered people, educated people, there are ways to make sure that you take away this idea that people are uneducated, uninformed, and you can make them more informed, show them why it's important to care and why it's important to, you know, voice their concerns. Devin, uh, before we take our uh, next break here, any final thoughts on the second segment? Um, no, I, I, I think it's interesting, the, the myth of the uneducated voter, because I think we're actually in, entering into a time where, to me at least, the bigger problem now is the miseducated voter or misinformed voter who has been sold a bill of goods that's just not true. And we saw this play out in 16, uh, even before then, in, in 2012, about some things that were said about you know President Obama that just were flat out not true. 
And then also this past year, we saw, you know, lies on top of lies that you can't keep up with, but people take those things to the ballot box with them. And so to me, the bigger problem now is that, yes, we do have tons of information at our fingertips, but how much of it is actually true? And some of that stuff that's not true will motivate people to go to the polls and make a decision that we're all going to have to pay for a la 2016. So I think that's, you know, yes, there's a you could say people are uneducated. I don't agree that they shouldn't, you know, should not be voting. That's crazy. But the bigger problem, I think, is it's just overall voter education, but also the miseducated voters out there who believe somehow that the last election was rigged and stolen or that it was going to be stolen. So they went to the ballot box with that in mind. Just. <laughs> and, I, and let me just say, I, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree with that. You know, the, the disinformation campaigns, the, 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 the spread of lies on social media, the, the fact that so many voters go to the polls with, with literally lies in their heads about the candidates and they cast their ballots on those, on those grounds. That's a major concern. I don't mean to suggest that it doesn't matter whether people um, either are educated or are correctly educated. It is it, it, the the point is that you don't take the franchise away, or you don't you you don't stop people from voting, or somehow try to protect the electorate from those people. You, you work on informing them better. And I think you know the good thing is obviously in in 2020 the the majority of Americans, uh, literally a majority, it was I, I think uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden won with over 51 percent of the vote. Um, were were not fooled by that uh, you know that um, disinformation campaign that was led by the Trump administration with uh, help from Russia. Uh, you know it, they they voted they voted you know in a way that I think re- reflected reality. Um, and, and that was, a, that was a good thing, but we can't be assured of that happening every time. Obviously there's, you know, um, we saw what happened in 2016 and, and, and we have to be, we have to be vigilant about it. No, no you're, yeah. you're, abs- you're, you're absolutely right. Um, because there's, there's, you know, the thing that I always worry about is the fact that, you know, Donald Trump was very incompetent, but there can always be someone that has more competence and more political finesse who can really take advantage of those things. We really have to work on voter education. That's that's definitely the, the next thing to work on. So we're going to take our next break here and get into our third segment where we really want to uh, take us into the future, Jesse. We, we know that there are some better alternatives and some better ways to uh, reform our system. So we're going to get into that. So uh, listeners, stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, let's get back into our third segment here. Remember, we're joined today with Jesse Wegman, a member of the New York Times editorial board. So, uh, Jesse, we know that you've got a book out, Let the People Pick the President. Um, You talk about how the Electoral College undermines democracy, and we've kind of talked about that. You make references uh, to the minority voters and how they're outnumbered in a lot of uh, key state populations. So within that Electoral College uh, model, it almost seems like those voters don't matter. And, you you know, we've made mention to the reference of slavery and even post-Reconstruction, how that works. We've talked about the fact that in California, you've got millions of Republicans. Texas has millions of Democrats. 
But with that winner take all system, you know, it doesn't matter about those people. They're going to go to, you know, the popular vote. So with all that being said, it, it almost seems like the case to reform the Electoral College would be easier. It, you know, it would be giving people an actual voice to elect their leader. But our question to you, Jesse, in the third segment here to start off, what do you see as the barriers to reforming the Electoral College process for voting for the president? And, and how can we build more momentum and put pressure on federal and state leaders to adopt some changes? Well, the barriers now are what they has, have always been throughout American history, which is um, people's sense of their immediate partisan benefit uh, from the Electoral College. So if the people who thought that they benefited in the, in the near term from the way the Electoral College functions have always been the ones to defend it. We use the language of high principle and of we're a republic, not a democracy. And, you know, the Electoral College protects the small states. All these things are just flatly, you know, either misleading or completely untrue. Um, but, you know, they've always been, uh, you know, the, what the underlying defense has always been not principle, but partisan gain. And, you know, there have been roughly 800 attempts throughout American history to amend or abolish the Electoral College from the Constitution. That is far more than for any other single provision of the Constitution. And, and I think it goes to show that people have always been upset with this system. Somebody has always been upset with it. Uh, it's been people across the political spectrum. You know, in the 1950s and 1960s, um, you know, New York was one of the biggest swing states in the country. And the people who swung New York were black voters and ethnic minorities, like Jews in particular, in the big cities like New York City. This infuriated Southern white conservatives who were like, this isn't fair. How do they have all this extra power to decide the presidency? Why does their vote matter more than mine? It's almost the mirror image of the fight we're having today and of the complaints from liberals today saying, why should a few, you know, random white people in, in you know, Wisconsin or, or uh, wherever it is, Georgia or Florida, uh, decide the outcome of the election for the rest of us? It's always been the same complaint and there's always been the same barriers to reform. Uh, you know, in my book, I write about the closest that we ever got in history to abolishing the Electoral College, which was in the late 1960s. This was an effort by Senator Birch Bayh of Indiana, uh, which slowly gathered so much support that by late 1960s, he had top Republicans and Democrats on board with abolishing the college and replacing it with a popular vote once and for all. Richard Nixon, as president, came out in favor of it. Uh, George H.W. Bush was in favor of it. Gerald Ford, Bob Dole, you know, top, top Republican leaders. Uh, and then, you know, obviously Democrats, too. And 80 percent of Americans at the time in late 1968 supported a popular vote for president. I mean, I don't think there's 80 percent of Americans who would grant anything today. And the House of Representatives overwhelmingly passed the amendment. Uh, it looked like you probably had enough states ready to ratify it. So the only remaining hurdle was the Senate. And as we know, the Senate is, is you know, the graveyard of legislation. It's where all good legislation goes to die. Um, the Senate blocked the Electoral College Amendment, the, the amendment that would ban the Electoral College and, and replace it with a popular vote. It was blocked in the Senate by a filibuster. And that filibuster was led by three Southern senators, segregationists all, Strom Thurmond, Sam Irvin, and Jim Eastland were, were the main driving forces behind it. And these were old Senate hands who knew exactly how the body worked, just like we have today, right? We're watching Mitch McConnell try to use the filibuster as a threat. These guys used it and it worked uh, and it killed the constitutional amendment for good. And, you know, when we talk about, well, why do people protect the Electoral College? 
the, the thing we hear so often is, oh, it's, it's the small states that matter. No, that's not true. The small states have never really cared about the Electoral College because they know they get screwed by it just like the big states, just like all states except for a few battleground states. No small state is a battleground state except for New Hampshire. No, what really blocked the Electoral College reform of the late 1960s was race, just like it has always been <laughs> throughout American history. Those Southern segregationists knew that they kept the power for the white political forces and white voters in the South by having this winner-take-all electoral college system. If you had a popular vote election, suddenly all the black voters in their states would, would have just as much power as the white voters in their states. And they'd be able to band together with voters elsewhere in the country who supported the same candidate they did. Um, and so I think they were very aware of uh, how much they would lose power, these these Southern segregationists, in a popular vote election, which is why they worked so hard to kill it off. And I just think that's really been all along this sort of sense of, of political power and of immediate political gain has always been the main reason that the Electoral College survived. Yeah, you're exactly right. And hearing you talk about what happened in like the 1960s and how close we came, you know, to really up upheaving the system and changing it, it almost sounds like a parallel universe when you think to what's happening right now. Anytime we bring up changing or tweaking the, the electoral college voting system, people like get up in arms and say, no, you're, you know, it's, it's been this way for a long time. We don't need to change it. Not realizing, you know, in the 1960s, we were on the brink of doing just that. And you had top Republicans who were on board, like you said, Nixon and even George H.W. Bush were on board with it, which sounds kind of insane. You would never know that uh, in the current political climate because people don't, they just don't know or we don't care to tell folks that, yes, we actually came very close to changing our system. It's not like this abstract idea that we just pulled out the sky. This has been an ongoing discussion, um, even though it kind of fills it out after the vote in the 60s. But um, our, our second question kind of is, how do we fix it? You know, so we, we kind of have some states trying to pack together. Um, right now, we have about 15 states that have joined what's called the National Popular Vote Interstate uh, Compact. And it's 15 states that would award their electoral votes to the candidate who wins the national na nationwide popular vote. Although this pact doesn't take effect until they actually have enough states that would equal 270 electoral votes, you know, people are, you know, trying to push that and get some momentum behind that movement. But another solution potentially is we've talked a lot about the winner take all system. So some people have mentioned changing that winner take all test system, replacing that with a proportional allocation of electoral votes, you know, essentially tying that to the percentage of votes each candidate gets in a state, which would essentially make every state more competitive since you would be getting at least some, you know, electoral votes, depending on how much of the percentage of, of the vote you got. So I guess our take is, you know, what is, what is your take on those kind of solutions and uh, what would be the benefits and drawbacks of a totally popular vote system? Well, you know, no system for electing a leader is perfect, right? There, you, you could find flaws with any system, and I'm not arguing that there is a perfect way or that the national popular vote would be that. It would be a fairer way in which all people's votes were equal, right? That's the essence of a representative democracy is this, this theory of political equality, that all votes are equal. One person, one vote. Everybody's vote matters the same. Nobody's vote matters more or less than anybody else's. So that, to me, is the fundamental driving principle behind uh, pushing for a popular vote is that everybody is equal and that the candidate who wins the most votes wins the election. So political equality, one person, one vote, 
and majority rule. Those are to me the, the, the two guiding lights of, of any modern representative democracy and the electoral college as it functions today fails them both. You mentioned this national popular vote interstate compact. It's a bit of it's a bit of a mouthful, and I, you know, I've been studying it for several years now. It's a, it, but it's a really interesting means of trying to get us to what would effectively be a national popular vote, while keeping the electoral college in place. So I'll just explain briefly what it is. This compact is an agreement among states. Uh, to award their electors differently. Right now, remember, they award their electors based on their statewide vote total. What they would agree, what they agree to do when they join this compact, this, this multi-state agreement, is to award their electors to the winner of the votes in all 50 states combined. Not just their state, but all 50 states. They count every vote equally. Now, one state doing this isn't going to make a difference, right? So that's why the the other element of this plan is what you mentioned, which is that states ha- rep- representing a majority of electoral votes, 270, that's what you need to win to become president, need to join this compact, this agreement, before it takes effect. Once states representing 270 electoral votes join it, you've automatically elected the person who is the popular vote winner in the country. And what that means is it it solves the battleground state problem that we were talking about earlier. It forces the candidates to go everywhere in the country to win votes because they know they need to win the most votes to win the election. So it's actually a really ingenious design, uh, and it uses the Electoral College as it is built. Remember what I said earlier, states have almost total authority to do what they want with their electors. They get told by the Constitution how many electors they get, but what they do with them, it's up to them. They don't even have to let you and me as citizens of the country vote. We have no constitutional right at all to vote for president. That's a state granted right. And that, and you know, right now we all have that right and we have had it. Every state has given it uh, without exception since 1876. The last time a state didn't let its vote, uh, ele- uh, regular citizens vote it, the, the, the lawmakers chose the uh, candidate, uh, chose the electors that year in Colorado. But, you know, states have that power. And what the recognition of this uh, compact is, is that, oh, well, if they have the power, why don't they just change it? Why do they have to award their electors based on just their own state? They can say, oh, we're going to award electors based on the national popular vote. And that, I think, is really an ingenious way to get to a popular vote without amending the Constitution, which, as we've seen, is is really too big a lift right now. It shouldn't be that hard. I think it should be easier to amend the Constitution. But that's the political reality that we live in. And I think we need to deal with that, you know, rather than the, the world we would like to live in. So as you say, 15 member states plus D.C., uh, together, they represent 196 electoral votes. We said before you need 270 before this uh, agreement actually kicks into effect. So they're 74 votes away. They're 196. They need 270. They're 74 votes away from meeting that 270 vote threshold and then automatically electing the person who wins the most votes in the country, forcing the candidates to campaign everywhere and care about all Americans, no more erased Americans. Um, Getting those last 74 votes is going to be a bit of a challenge because um, I think it's such a partisanized issue right now, even though it shouldn't be, that um, people think that, oh, it's a democratic plot to take over the presidency. It's not. Um, but it does happen so so far that uh, all the states that have adopted it are, are democratic-led states, what we call blue states, right? And no red state has yet adopted the compact. That's unfortunate. I wish we had a mixture of states doing it um, because I think then it would feel a lot more legitimate to the country as a whole. But that's where that effort stands. 
Um, you mentioned another potential solution, which is called proportional allocation. Again, states can do this at their will. They can change their state law anytime they want, before an election, that is, not after an election. Um, and they can change it to uh, award their electors based on the, the the proportion of votes that the candidate wins and that's that each candidate wins in that state. If a candidate gets 60% of the popular vote in that state, they get 60% of that state's electors. You know, it sounds appealing on the surface. In my book, I go I go into in detail why it's actually not a very good solution. First of all, every state would have to adopt it for it to work. Um, it doesn't work if just a few states do it. Uh, in fact, it puts those states at a pretty severe disadvantage and doesn't actually solve the problem that we're talking about here, which is that most Americans get ignored in the presidential election. So uh, other problems are that, uh, you know, in big states, you could probably pretty well approximate what the vote of the state is um, based on, you know, using your electors like California, 55 electors. It's pretty easy to get pretty close to what um, how California votes. But in a sm- much smaller state, it's harder. Let's take, you know, any no- any of the uh, small states with three or four electoral votes. Well, if you had three electoral votes and the vote was 51-49, how do you how do you characterize that in an electoral vote? You can only do you only have two choices, which is two to one or three to zero. And neither of those represents a, a, what is essentially a 50-50 split in the popular vote. So you start to replicate that around the country and you start to warp again the outcome of the election. Um uh, you know, according to these just because the limitations of math. And I think it's really um it's tempting and it looks better because it sounds like, oh, well, we're actually going to be acknowledging that there's, you know, people of supporting both parties in every state. But in fact, you probably end up for reasons that, uh, you know, I take a little while to explain and which I, I do detail in the book. Um, you probably end up with with an even more distorted outcome than you do currently under the winner take all system. Now, that's so interesting because, you know, I, I figured you, you had done your research and, and, and kind of laid out a picture there of what that particular system would look like, because that was something I was like, OK, that makes sense. You know, proportional allocation. But like you say, it actually does come down to a simple <laughs> math problem of trying to you, you're not going to do like fractional electors. So it's not going to work that way. Um, one little just little follow up was also. Um, you know, a lot of people may may feel like if we do go to a national popular vote system, that small cities, small states will kind of get flown over and candidates would only campaign in the large urban areas and larger states. Do you think that's a fair critique, you know, of a of a popular vote system and just kind of maybe give us your take on why that's accurate or, or that may not actually be the case? No, it's not. Um, so two two points to make about that. First of all, right now, under the existing system that we have, the vast majority of Americans in all states, small states, big states, medium-sized states, are ignored by both candidates because they live in safe states, states that you know, you n- not, no amount of campaigning the candidates do is going to change which candidate gets more votes in that state, right? So that's why we call them safe. It's a terrible term, right? It makes it sound like, oh, you don't matter. You're safe. Uh, but that's how millions of Americans live right now under the system that we have right now. So this idea that, oh, if you had a popular vote, suddenly millions of people would be ignored. Well, that's what's happening today, <laughs> But even still, let, let's let's move on from that and say, well, what would happen under a national popular vote? I think people just drastically underestimate how campaigns actually work. And so the last chapter of my book, I spend talking to campaign managers and, you know, field directors of both Republican and Democratic presidential campaigns going back several decades. And I said to them, what would you do differently to try to win? 
if you had to win the popular vote rather than this winner take all electoral college. And they all had fascinating answers for me, you know, and, and that what it boiled down to was we go everywhere. That's how elections that are based on a popular vote are run. Look at governor elections in the states right now. That is like the closest kind of analog that we have for a presidential election is a gubernatorial election. And that's because it's for the leader of a jurisdiction that all the votes count the same, no matter where they're from, right? No state has an electoral college within it. And the candidate who gets the most votes wins. So what do those candidates do in those states? Do they just sit in the big cities and ignore everywhere else? No, the big cities don't have anywhere near enough voters to decide the outcome of the election. Certainly not on a national level, but sometimes not even on a state level. Um, you know, certainly New York City residents didn't want George Pataki as their governor. Uh, you know, California, uh, Los Angeles residents didn't want Pete Wilson as their governor. Um, so, you know, even the big cities, these supposedly, you know, monster cities that that will dominate everything and nobody else will have any say, you know, they don't have the ability to to change the outcome of an election. In fact, as the candidates know, they have to go everywhere and they have to win votes everywhere. And even even in areas where they are not going to win outright, they want to lose by less. And that's the key is losing by less. Donald Trump didn't win Miami-Dade this past year, but he lost it by a lot less than he did in 2016. And that was a big part of why he won Florida as a whole. So you got to campaign everywhere, win votes everywhere. And that means appealing to voters everywhere. I just think that whole this whole idea of the cities will dominate is a very... It's a very old and it's a very racialized idea, I have to say. You know, you go back into the 1960s and the fight over the one person, one vote cases at the Supreme Court. This was what led to our current uh, one person, one vote principle. And you see the same arguments are, are, are playing out. You see whites in the South saying, if you have this political equality, then the cities are going to dominate. And what they mean when they say cities, of course, are dark-skinned people, right? Is black and brown people having more power, more say in elections than white people do, or at least just more than they had before. They may not have more than the whites, but they're going to have more. And I think that's what, what frightens white people the most. So this sort of, this sort of urban focus of this argument that that's the cities that are going to dominate, you know, you can really, you don't have to scratch too far below the surface to find a lot of racial, uh, superstition and racial, uh, resentment in there. So I really think let's not forget that when we hear that argument being made. But the bottom line is it's, it's, it's a statistically, uh, and, uh, sort of strategically completely, um, detached from reality. And, you know, you shouldn't spend too much time on it. You know, Jesse, that's that's an important point. It's definitely counter to the narrative here in American society that keeps saying, you know, there's black and brown people coming into your neighborhoods to take your jobs, mess your schools up and burn down your city. So you're, you're really, really hitting on some great stuff. But before we hold you too long, we're going to take our last break so we can make sure to get your final message, which is just a great way to send off our episode to our listeners So we're going to take our last break here. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Jesse Wegman's final message. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show.
All right, listeners, let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. As always, we'd like to do a final message, sending off our episode and a great big old bow off to you. So, Jesse, just to set the stage, and remember, listeners, we're joined today with Jesse Wegman, a member of the New York Times editorial board. And like I was saying, Jesse, just to kind of set the stage for your final message, you know, the late, the legend, Congressman John Lewis talked so much about how voting is a powerful tool in a democracy. He fought so hard to make sure people, black people, brown people, anybody had a voice and a say in the government. However, when you throw in the Electoral College, it makes people feel like they either don't have to vote or there's no point in voting. With our current system, it shows that our democracy is very fragile because it can be swayed by a group of elite voters rather than the general will of the people. If we ever are to get to a point of more voter participation, it's very clear that the Electoral College must go in order to really put the power back into the hands of the people. So, Jesse, you made the, uh, the, the comment that we've had, you know, 800 attempts and we came so close in the 60s but failed. So we'd like you to leave us with the final message that energizes voters all around the country to know that they actually have power when it comes to influencing their political leaders to change the rules in their state on the Electoral College and to not give up. Look, you know, when you look at sort of day-to-day politics, it's easy to feel disheartened right now. Um, You know, there's a lot of uh, voter suppression going on. There's a lot of uh, antipathy toward um, whole communities of voters and particularly black and brown voters in this country coming from uh, the Republican Party. And it's and it's easy to feel like uh, this is just never going to end. And, and it's and it's always going to be there and always going to be preventing people uh, at large and particularly communities of color from having an equal voice in, in choosing our representatives and our leaders. Uh, you know, when you step back and look at the larger arc of American history, you really see something more encouraging, which is you see this, this, you know, by no means perfect arc, but you do see this arc toward greater democratization, toward greater inclusivity, a greater, a more expansive and a more inclusive democracy in which all people can be counted as equal. So we start off at the founding, right, when only a tiny fraction of people are even allowed to vote, right, landowning white men. Uh, And then slowly, slowly through American history, but surely you see that expansion happening. You see first the franchise is extended to poorer white men, white men without uh, property. Uh, And then it gets obviously after the Civil War uh, and the abolition of slavery and the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, you have, uh, in, in theory at least, black people are allowed to vote. Um, Jim Crow then gets in the way for 80 years. And actually, the Electoral College plays an interesting role in the rise of Jim Crow, which you can read about in my book. Um, but then, you know, you enter the 19th, uh, the, the, the 1900s and you have women get the right to vote, right? 50% of the population that had been denied the vote uh, suddenly becomes uh, eligible to vote. And then you have the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s and the and the, the one person, one vote principle that gets articulated at the Supreme Court that suddenly, uh, you know, gi- you know, gives real life and meaning to uh, voter equality, no matter of your race. And so each of these steps along the way is is a is moving in the right direction and moving in the same direction. We've obviously had setbacks. We obviously zig and we zag all over the place. This is not by by any stretch 
a kind of smooth, easy coast into, uh, you know, full, uh, you know, universal uh, uh, voter eligibility and, and voting. But it is moving in the right direction. And so that's where I really see the hope. And that's where I think the Electoral College is the last step on that progression, the last point on that arc where we can say this is yet another of those mechanisms that was instituted in the late 18th century by men who owned other people and thought that was okay and who who thought women were not equal to them and who thought even poorer whites were not equal to them right and and at every step of the way we have broken down uh, uh those prejudices and those exclusions and and it's been based on this principle that's enunciated in the declaration of independence right that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal like that that really is kind of our our our, our north star in a sense um you know it's it's certainly not enough and it's certainly not been met throughout most of american history but we are so much closer to that today than we were in 1787 or in 1865 or in 1965 or even in 2000. So I really feel, you know, when I look at that whole arc of history, I feel a lot more hopeful and I feel like, you know, the the force of our argument and the force of equality is so much more powerful uh, than the force of exclusion and the forces of discrimination. Uh, it's never been an easy fight and it's never been a clean fight. Um, but you know, we keep winning step by step. So to me, knocking out the, the this sort of intermediary uh, step, this, this bizarre way of choosing a president that ends up erasing the voices of tens of millions of Americans and particularly black Americans throughout the South, that is going to be the next and perhaps final step in really uh, vindicating the principles of the Declaration of Independence that all of us are equal. Exactly. And that's a message that everybody needs to hear. And it does leave you being, you know, at least me thinking about it, it does make you feel at least a little bit more hopeful that eventually we will get there. It is a long road. Um, but as we know, eventually we do get there and try to expand access uh, or expand franchisement and access to the ballot box, whether that's, you know, in, increasing the number of people who can vote and, and should vote, but also the way in which we elect our leaders. Um you know, we are a in an experiment. We should always remember we're an experiment here. So it's not going to be uh, we're not going to look the same in 2021 as we will. And, in, in, you know, 100 years from now, it's probably going to be different. So we have to be able to change with the times. And obviously, we a lot of folks feel it is time that we change and get rid of the Electoral College. Um, you know, I'll admit I wasn't the first person to jump on the bandwagon, but this conversation helps at least explore you know, the ways in which it would look like and the reasons why we got this system in the first place, but also why it's time for it to change. So I just appreciate you, Jesse, just bringing that message and, and bringing kind of the facts and laying it out there for folks who can hear this and understand it. it doesn't go over people's head. It's in layman terms. It explains clearly why this system um, is past this time and it's past time that we changed it. So I just wanted to make that point there. Well, I'm I'm happy to join and talk about these things, and I'm I'm one in a long line of people uh, throughout American history who've been making this argument. So I hope that one day all of this uh, all of this argumentation leads us somewhere good, and that we can get to a place where all votes are equal and everybody's vote matters. Exactly. And Jesse, before we let you go, we just want to make sure to promote your book. Let the people pick the president. Uh, listeners, you can find that on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Audible, Books a Million, all the other major outlets. Uh, let the people pick the president. A really, really great read to talk about why we need to abolish Electoral College. Remember today we've been joined by Jesse Wegman, a member of the New York Times editorial board. 
Jesse, we're going to let you go today. We thank you so much uh, for really transforming this conversation, bringing it to the 21st century to make it uh, relevant to why we need to do it. So listeners, we're going to let Jesse go. Uh, We're going to take our last break and Dev and I are going to return and bring you our ending. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, as always, we like to end the show with giving you a look forward as far as what's upcoming on the podcast. So uh, up first is that our next episode, is we're going to be asking the question, um, is college worth it? And we're excited to have Mr. Anthony O'Neill, who is a number one bestselling author, financial expert and host of the popular online series, The Table with Anthony O'Neill. And so on the show, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of going to college and maybe give you some insight on if that decision is right for you. So if you're a college grad, we hope to give you some insight on how to navigate college debt and then the job opportunities when you do graduate from school. So everyone can learn a little bit from this conversation. Again, we'll be talking with uh, Anthony O'Neill, number one national bestselling author, financial expert, and host of the popular online series, The Table. And so After Anthony's episode, we'll be back next Saturday, May 1st at 1 o'clock p.m. to bring you the news from the past week. That's going to be our weekly roundup number 15. Um, That's our chance to bring you all the news from the past week. We try to give it to you in an unbiased fashion, but it is our opinions. Um, But we're just trying to highlight some stories and things that you may have heard about, maybe some things you didn't hear about. And one interesting note, um, just to keep in mind, is that our weekly roundups are audio only now. So you can listen to us in the Podbean app, or you can find us at podbean.com forward slash LSW forward slash Black Agenda Pod. And so again, our weekly roundups will be audio only uh, for the rest of this season. Um, And lastly, we do appreciate your support in listening to us and following us, but we do Always like to put it out there that we do accept donations and monetary support. So, Adrian, um, you can let the viewers or listeners know where they can give us a few dollars. Yeah, um, if you are a fan of our podcast, we you know we appreciate you following, liking, and sharing everything. We would really love to turn you into a patron. Um, the reason I always tell people is that you know David and I would love talking to people about you know engaging topics and educating the community. But in everything that we do, we want to do more. Uh, We want to be able to actually have some influence on these topics. And with that influence, it takes money. We may need to start an organization, lobby leaders, and different things of that nature. So your financial support really helps to transform the Black Agenda podcast into an actual operation for uh, support for the community, which is what we're ultimately trying to do. The easy thing to do is just go to our website, blackagendapod.com. Click on the donate tab and start off by giving a dollar a month while you're listening to our Podbean app. You can also click the donate tab from there. But easiest thing to do is go to our website. Like I said, a dollar a month is an easy contribution to start off with. And it lets us know that you believe in the mission of bringing some progress to our communities. 
The other thing that we want to make sure to highlight is that we're doing a charity of the month. For the month of April, our charity of the month will be the organization called Strive. They actually have a 36-year track record of serving people who face the greatest obstacles to employment. They help a population seeking to acquire the skills and attitudes that they need to find sustained employment. The majority of people that walk through the doors of Strive have no source of income, yet the majority of graduates go on to gain meaningful employment and achieve economic self-sufficiency. So a really, really great organization, especially someone to, uh, to, to promote and highlight as we're coming out of this pandemic and trying to open up our government and have some economic recovery. So check them out. Make sure you go to our website, blackagendapie.com. Click that donate tab so you can really help to spread our mission even further. Absolutely. And before we let you go, we always like to mention that you can like, share and follow us on the, the major platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and now YouTube. You can subscribe to us on YouTube at Black Agenda Pod. Also, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. We make it easy here. BlackAgendaPod.com is our website, and then our handles are all Black Agenda Pod. So uh, make sure you like, share, and follow our content. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, but also Share our content with your fan, friends, family, coworkers, and anybody else um, that you think would, would enjoy this content. We're just trying to get this knowledge and these conversations out into our community so we can educate the folks on what's going on. So, uh, again, we appreciate you listening to our conversation with Mr. Jesse Wegman about the Electoral College. And again, his book is Let the People Pick the President. You can find that on Amazon. Uh, Barnes and Noble, anywhere where you buy your books, you can find his book. It's a very interesting read. Um, So again, we thank you for listening and staying with us and we'll catch you next time.